0: The other day, I was taking a walk at a city park not far from my friend's house where I was staying. After crossing the hilled venue several times, I paused by a fence to contemplate the urban view. Among the multiple blocks of plain buildings housing hundreds of lives, a soccer field interrupted the landscape. Though empty of humans, I wondered about the bodies and stories that stepped on it frequently. And I pondered, too, what their lives would feel like had the field not been placed there. Soccer, or football here in Europe, has been a peripheral part of my life since I was little. For over 19 years, I lived beside a football field, which every weekend served as the background noise to my existence, with children and parents clapping their hands and cheering loudly. One of my brothers plays professional football, too. While I never invested much time in learning the rules of the game to my brother's annoyance, I admit football, as a larger phenomenon, has long fascinated me, both as the build-bridger that it is, uniting people across social classes and personalities, as well as the barrier former that it can become. Also, because it often seems to serve a cathartic function to many folks in our society who find in this sport an escape from daily drudgery. The story that I bring you today is one of a football lover. And since this isn't a sports podcast just yet, and instead a wisdom-seeking one, I hope to approach the football theme from a fresh angle, one grounded in a commitment to make fields more inclusive to anyone that enjoys the sport. Born in Oregon in the US, Alexia Garcia started playing football early, probably because her father was a coach. Before finishing high school, she decided to quit, and her free time after that would be devoted to grassroots activism, as she engaged in several school protests, urging the government to stop cutting school budgets, evolve standardized testing, and so on. Today, she lives in Madrid, where she now merges her two interests, football and activism, as the director of business development, project manager, and coach at Dragones de Pies. If you don't yet know Dragones, they're a football club on a mission to promote social integration, equality and respect through sports. Founded more than 10 years ago by a group of mothers and fathers of the Lavapiés neighborhood, the most diverse neighborhood in Madrid, its aim is to provide the community with an affordable alternative to more mainstream, hyper-masculine and often overly competitive football clubs in the city. With more than 50 different nationalities in 18 teams, the club hosts more than 500 players. And in addition to hosting trainings and competitions, Dragones also facilitates a series of other activities, ranging from English classes and barista trainings to programs promoting anti-racism, for example. In this episode, I converse with Alexia to learn more about her experience at Dragones, as well as her larger story of becoming, as a queer football player, as an activist, as a freelance writer and recent university professor, and as an occasional DJ. And
1: I think it's really cool that I talk to people on the Dragonist men's team that they're like, you play soccer and they just have no context for women's football. But from there, we're able to kind of have this engagement and suddenly they mm-hmm. are coming and supporting the queer team. And it's like, whoa, in what world did this like mm-hmm. random man who two weeks ago didn't even think about like women would like football is now implicated in this bigger
0: struggle. I'm Carlotta Gitsch and this is The Waking Youth Podcast. I want to start by exploring a bit of your personal history. So where you come from and where you come from, Portland, Oregon, and also where you come from in terms of your interests. And you mentioned sports, that you played sports for, for a while. So where would you trace the, back the roots of this interest in sports and soccer more specifically?
1: Yeah, so I'm from Portland, Oregon in the United States. and. I think for those who don't know, Portland is like a soccer city. We don't have an American football team. We at some points had a baseball team, but really what the city's been committed to has been soccer, and especially women's soccer. Um, I grew up playing on girls' teams my entire life. I think a difference between European football and football in the States is that uh, we just separate girls and boys from the beginning, and there's a lot of investment in women's soccer, specifically because a lot of boys are kind of pushed into basketball mm-hmm. or American football and whatnot. So I think I grew up always feeling really supported in those spaces. And then having the University of Portland in my city, which is where like Megan Rapinoe, Christine Sinclair, a lot of the like top women football players that you'll know today just went to university there. So I grew up watching them, trading with them, getting autographs after games. And it's also... The headquarters of Nike, so I grew up being able to like go see Mia Hamm speak or go. I think we were able to. The Women's World Cup was hosted when I was a kid mm-hmm. um, in Portland, and my dad was always very committed to kind of, I think in general supporting my brother's eye and whatever kind of our passions were at that moment. Um, but I think he took a really special interest in in soccer. Both he became a soccer coach, so it's really common for you just a parent volunteers to be the soccer coach. So he was my coach f- for pretty much my entire like youth and I think really your actual
0: coach of your team yeah how was that to have your dad as a coach? <laughs> I mean it was it
1: was cute I think I think for years it was really special because and not only was he the coach but he was on the board of the soccer club so he was he was the equipment manager. So our house was just filled with soccer equipment. So there was no doubt that I had pop-up goals and soccer balls and like equipment in my house to train, which also meant we had privileges of, yeah, going to see at Hamm speak or going to meet. I met the Ghana woman national team when I was like eight, right? Mm-hmm. And it's because he was so involved in like Portland soccer. But I know when I turned 11 or something and I started playing on like a club team, I remember coming home and just being like, dad, don't don't coach me anymore. Like, I have a coach now. Um, So I think there's a point when you grow out of it. And I think, I mean, I think it pushes you to be better if you really love it. Because, Mm. I don't know, you don't want to just be the kind of, like, privileged coach's daughter. I don't know if i ever actually felt that (laughs) way. (laughs) But but I know that I was supported and encouraged in a way that probably my peers may have not been just because my dad was physically there in every... Part of my, like, early soccer days. And then, yeah, growing up, I loved it, right? Mm -hmm. And I think as kids, we were all very encouraged to take on our hobbies and kind of invest where our family is very, like, (laughs) (laughs) go-hard-or-go-home mentality. So I was playing so much. I loved it. And eventually, I actually kind of burned out. Eventually, I kind of—I just was never fast. (laughs) I don't know. I, like, uh, got to a point where— I stopped being one of the best on the team. Okay. And I quickly kind of shifted some of my interests and got really involved in activism. Mm. And to what point,
0: more or less, in
1: your life? Uh, towards the end of high school. And and I think what's interesting and important until today is my interest in women's football as like a political fight. And you as like a woman player, I always say it's hard to separate that from activism just because you receive so much sexism in every Kind of sports space. But no, I think my, I really shifted to organizing in Portland with Portland students and organizing around different kind of like global injustices and whatnot. So um, this was
0: not connected to football initially? It no. was just activism. What were you yeah.
1: doing? Yeah. Um, yeah. So towards the end of high school, we started a Portland Students Union, which kind of started out of budget cuts to the public schools. And I just got really involved kind of across the whole city of Portland organizing different protests. Like one? We had, honestly, it, w- it was really impressive. We had a big students on strike where everyone skipped school and went down to the Portland School District headquarters and honestly, really impressive for high school students like shutting down bridges and whatnot. Um, and some of them were really massive protests. And then... I think I always straddled being in really like kind of activist protest spaces and also very more like going to the state capitol to talk to legislators or mm-hmm. going um, to the school board. So then I simultaneously was like elected to be the representative on the school board. And I, I just totally at this point kind of quit soccer and mm-hmm. shifted my focus. And yeah, we, man, I, honestly, this stuff I do think shaped a lot of who I was. I, mean, I wouldn't say more so than soccer, but it took a different turn, definitely. Um, we led a huge boycott of the standardized tests for the ways they were being used to evaluate students and teachers and closed schools. <laughs> and yeah, I think I got really involved in that like political activist work on both, like kind of a national level within the United States.
0: So it was about education. What else? What yeah. were the themes?
1: I'd say, yeah, defending public education. Defending against school closures, particularly Mm -hmm. school closures in like black neighborhoods, fighting for kind of an education system that I think is more holistic than kind of standardized Mm -hmm. testing approaches. And yeah, I think definitely any sort of fighting against budget cuts and supporting like we deserve schools that have art programs, that have have sports programs, including that. But just seeing the potential of what a school could be versus the situation of our public schools and the current continual like degrading Mm -hmm. things that are coming down from national legislation to justify the closure of schools and justify the privatization of our schools. So yeah, my senior year of high school, I was (laughs) much more involved in that and I kind of quit soccer and didn't actually...
0: Was it hard to quit?
1: At that point, I was so burned out and I think... I think it's probably true anywhere, but in the United States, it was very, I th- I mean, I think it's true so many places where for kids who are in, involved in sports, you get to an age where just like your coaches are allowed to be mean to you, like the demands on you are so intense. And I think I kind of accepted that I just like wasn't at the level I wanted to be and I felt like limited in how much I could even do like additional training to get there, which... I don't know. I think it's true that it never stopped my love for the game. And then I always still watch the World Cups. And I was always really invested on like a political level, honestly, following it from like later all the protests within the women's national team and whatnot. But no, it wasn't necessarily hard. At that point, I was so like done. It wasn't yeah. hard to quit. And you
0: mentioned sexism and you mentioned being done. I don't know if those two are related, um, but what were you? It was the burnout. It was the abuse. What, what was it? The strictness of it, understanding that you're not wanting to do it professionally, what Yeah. I mean, I think
1: I think I honestly accepted that I wasn't at the level I wanted to mm-hmm. be at to be able to be playing. Just to be able to be playing, right? Like I was on the bench. And <laughs> that's not fun. I don't know how much sexism actually impacted my decision to quit. I think I think that's more of a problem in Spain. I think that's mm-hmm. more of a problem in other places. Although there's definitely the narratives of you kick like a girl, you put, you know, like basic messages you'd hear. Mm -hmm. I actually think football in the States or women's soccer in the States is not, I would say here. it's. I don't know how familiar you are here, but it's very political and it's very queer. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of lesbian women who are really involved. I think because your identity is already kind of subversive or I don't know. Non we'll non normative, we'll yeah. Go there. We'll okay, go there. if you want, we can wait <laughs> on that. But I think that that's not the case in the states. I think the states, it's any like a lot of different women feel really welcome in those spaces. And I actually think I was kind of like the queer one on the team, or mm-hmm. I was the one who wasn't as I was so like politically engaged, mm-hmm, okay. and I think my teammates weren't. I think that actually. I didn't. I said I'll just say I didn't have friends, <laughs> and that's that's. You fine. didn't have friends. Not really on my team. I didn't connect that much with the girls on my teams, which I don't know. That's that's fine. It mm-hmm. <laughs> that could be up for a whole host of reasons, but yeah, I think I was much more in like alternative mm-hmm. spaces than most of my peers on the mm-hmm. football team. But yeah.
0: <laughs> okay. And you mentioned that uh, those two things, sports and the activism, shaped you. Mm-hmm. Perhaps even more the activism, more so than, than the sports. How would you begin talking about in what ways they shaped you? Um, I think I guess
1: I'll start with the activism. Where I think it's clear <laughs> the ways that I feel shaped by it.
0: And how did you start? Did you start out of your own initiative? Did you have a mentor? It was with your friends? What, how did that come up?
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Not a lot of
0: (laughs) high schoolers are activists.
1: No, I think it was, and it was really unique at that time because today in the United States, it's very common. Mm -hmm. Um, But at that time, my older brother was somehow got really political as well. And he, right, he became vegan. Like in Portland was also kind of Trendy with some kind of progressive, like vegans, bicycles, (laughs) like, I don't know. Um, But my older brother got really into various causes, specifically the global water crises. And then one of my neighbors and best friends growing up, Dina, she was on the, she was a student representative on the school board and was really involved in the kind of school board organizing. And so having two of them who, I don't know if I'd call them mentors. They're, they're like two years older than me, three years older than me. But yeah, I think as a high, when you first start high school, it's like, I'm just going to follow my big brother around. So I would go to protests and stuff with my older brother. And we started initially trying to get bottled water removed from our schools, specifically related to kind of privatization of global water resources and the sale of bottled water being... Environmentally destructive and destructive of communities. Um, and I think through that process of learning, just now our school district receives money from Coca-Cola, and they're in no position to stop receiving that money um, because they don't have money. I think I kind of like took this turn of, okay, I think there's like big problems specifically within our school district. But no, I think it's really empowering to like be with your peers and to feel like yeah, that, like, collectively you have a voice, collectively you you are knowledgeable and you can, like, form an opinion. And mm. you—to this day, I'm like, no, I was right on a lot of those issues that I stood by in high school. Mm-hmm. And we, I think, really did kind of stand up to authority. And I think that feels really empowering to feel like within your peer group you can truly take a stand. And I think it reorients conversations around, like, what we should demand for ourselves— whether it be educational-wise, like, why am I accepting, like, a miserable educational experience? Mm-hmm. Um, and we very quickly found kind of allies within different teachers. I got really involved in the teachers' union. So I'd say other mentors were, like, a lot of—and what's cool about teaching is it's it's largely women, right? Mm-hmm. So every time I go to home to Portland, I have my friends from the teachers' union, who it's, like, a very multi-generational but woman who I hang out with. But, yeah, I think you quickly learn to stand up for things, to build a community, and to demand more for yourselves and Mm -hmm, each other. mm -hmm. And I think that's really lessons that have carried with me.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: As far as sports go, (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I mean, people always talk about, like, you learn values in sport. It's a great space to develop youth and whatnot. And I think think in a lot of ways, and I think for a lot of kids, it is kind of an escape from... Mm -hmm. If you're just like overwhelmed at school or like, I don't know, my parents were like divorced. I think one thing I like felt like I really had control over was going to soccer practice and really dedicating myself to that. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I would say I learned amazing values Mm -hmm. about teamwork, but Mm -hmm. arguably I probably did.
0: (laughs) I'm very curious to explore because you have written several times about community in the context of sports and Mm -hmm. I will just let that out and then let's return. I just want to explore a bit of your growing up and then you you picked political science. Is that correct? Yeah. Why did you pick that? I mean, it's pretty obvious because you are involved already in very political things. But what was what was calling you there? Did you reflect much about that decision just sort of happened? How was that for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I went into university, so I took a gap year. Um, before starting university. And I interned at the teachers' union in Portland, and then I moved to Seattle and worked on another like teacher union campaign there. Um, so when I started university, I think I came in very confident with an interest in education politics and kind of like a political perspective that I think, again, not a lot of my peers kind of entered with. And then I think I actually got kind of lost and was kind of like, there's like so many things to choose from. I've bad ADHD, I don't know. So, political science was actually the the major that was kind of <laughs> easiest to get all the credits for mm-hmm. and allowed me to have the most diverse range of other classes beyond political science. So, I think I actually chose it to mm-hmm. be able to have the flexibility of taking a lot of classes in education, geography, history as well as political science. Mm-hmm. And our political science department I think a lot of people, when they think about it, they think about just government. Mm-hmm. But ours was very international, post-colonial theory, gender theory, queer theory, um, which I'm really thankful for. And mm-hmm. I think I had a really great educational experience at university. And I was also very involved in solidarity with Palestine work. Mm-hmm. So I think that shaped How come? a lot of my interest in those courses. It was kind of random. I met people before university who had been organizing in that work, and they were kind of like, this is where you should put your efforts for campus organizing these years. And I can't say I like knew that much about the history mm-hmm. going into it, and I had a basic sense of, okay, anti-colonial struggle, solidarity with Palestine. But when I arrived, I just immediately signed up for Students for Justice in Palestine, and did immense amounts of kind of like research and organizing and we launched like a huge campaign, a boycott, official campaign. And yeah, I think it was kind of a way where my like activism and like interest in kind of like political theory and research and whatnot were kind of put mm-hmm. were able to be put together mm-hmm. um, to organize our campus on that issue. And I mean, it was stressful, but no, I think <laughs> all of those things I just ended up a lot in the political science mm-hmm. department. yeah, and in the end, I wrote my thesis about the labor movement. So I think I straddled activist movements a lot, which <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think is actually kind of how it goes is having a sense of a number of different movements and the interconnectedness mm-hmm. of them and thinking through strategy and different ways to create change. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'll leave it at that <laughs>
0: And do you remember? If you had any aspiration already of who you wanted to become?
1: When I started university, just because I'd spent so much time in teachers union spaces, I was really committed to becoming a public school teacher. Hmm. And I very quickly was like, this is miserable. (laughs) Public schools are underfunded. They're not well supported. Teaching positions are just demonized and blamed for all the problems in public schools and you just have enormous class sizes in the United States they're super diverse student bodies. It's, it just seems exhausting. Mm. So I was like, I just don't know if I can do that to myself. Um, although I love working with kids. So yeah. And I think I had come in with so much educational experience that the education department, I don't want to sound super arrogant, but I was a little bored. I was like, come on guys, like I know this. So I kind of dipped out of a little bit of that work. And, but no, the combination of those things led me to be like, I don't want to be a teacher. And I think it's weird. I think as, like, younger, you almost sometimes think you know it all. And then the older I get, the more, like, kind of lost I think I've been at different moments. Because, yeah, I gave up on that and moved to Spain was kind of my way out.
0: So what was the journey? Then you graduated and then... So I
1: I graduated and I really wanted to do like community organizing work, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it be for labor unions or other like activist groups. And in the United States, if you want to do that work, it's really important to know Spanish. So I was looking for different ways to kind of embed myself in a place where I could learn Spanish. And one of the easiest ways to get a visa in Spain is to teach English. So I signed up to become an English teacher and moved here, very much with the goal of being here for like a year or two and learning Spanish and then going back to the States or something. And yeah, I obviously haven't left. So (laughs) (laughs) yeah.
0: Why haven't you left?
1: Um, I mean, yeah, I think I like found a community here. I was quarantined here. The quarantine was definitely like, I'm not going to leave. I don't know what to do if I leave. (laughs) So I kept renewing my contract. And looking for, like, additional ways to be able to stay here. Mm-hmm. But, no, I think it was huge finding owners and starting our DJ collective and kind of finally making friends and feeling like I established myself here. And I think if life in the United States is very, it's brutal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, as far as just you live to work, you don't have vacation time, you don't. Like, work-life balance is not healthy. So I think I quickly was like, Mm -hmm. you know what, I should try to figure out how to make Mm -hmm. a life for myself in a place that feels more balanced or allows me to do more of what I love.
0: And you came alone.
1: Yeah, my older brother also did the English teaching program here, but a few years ago. So again, I kind of followed in his footsteps, but he wasn't here. And then, yeah, my... Best friend from university moved to Berlin at the same time. Mm -hmm. So I felt like I had some European support. But no, Mm -hmm. I came to, I was first in Bilbao in Basque Country and then to Madrid and alone, yeah.
0: (laughs) And how did you find Dragones?
1: So I wasn't playing soccer. I was living, my first year here I was in Bilbao. That was 2018 to 2019. 2019 I moved to Madrid at the end of the summer. Um, which was the year of the Women's World Cup in France. And I was so thrilled to watch that and also was following a team in Paris that was kind of an activist-oriented soccer team in Paris um, for women and queer folks. And then my friends were visiting, and we went to Paris. So when I went to Paris, I messaged them being like, hey, I'd love to meet. (laughs) And at this point, I didn't work in football. I had nothing to offer. I just... Wanted to get a coffee because they seemed cool. And then they were like, none of us are here. It's August, so they're all on vacation. But we have a friend in Madrid who plays on a team. Um, You should hit her up. She used to play on our team. So I contacted her and joined that team and immediately felt like it was not the activist team that the French team was. Um, Didn't connect with the players.
0: That team in Madrid. Yeah.
1: (laughs) And was a little disappointed. Why? Okay, I'll be very <laughs> honest. A bunch of them were police. And I'm like police. super activist <laughs> And I was like, I can't be on the cop team. And it, and it was weird. It like affected me to like my stomach, right? I was like, I can't go. These these girls, right? Afterwards, mm-hmm. they go and like harass people in Lava P.A.s. I can't be on this team. So then I was in Lava P.A.s one day at a bar. And I just randomly met Fra, who's our coach, and I'm, like, asking him about the club, and my first question is, are there police on the team? <laughs> and he's like, no, that's ridiculous. We're the, like, Club in Lava Pies, an activist community project that seeks to, like, build a safer neighborhood, but not through policing. So I, I was like, sign me up, and quit my other team. <laughs> it ended really poorly. <laughs> and, yeah, I just started training with Las Dragones, which Initially, it was started by the moms of the players in Dragones. Mm -hmm. Should I give background on Dragones or do people know?
0: Yeah, go for it. I'm going to explain, but I think it will be nice to hear in your words.
1: Okay, yeah. So Dragones started in 2014. Today, it has over 400 players um, from over 50 different nationalities. So it's super diverse, based in the Lava Pies neighborhood, which is probably the most diverse neighborhood in the center of Madrid. And about a third of our players are women and girls. And a lot of that is due to the moms who decided they wanted to play. Mm -hmm. So the moms of the kids were like, we should start our own team. They started Las Dragones probably five years ago. And, yeah, initially it was just kind of moms learning how to play. And then later I joined, and a number of kind of non-moms, people Mm -hmm. from the neighborhood joined. And it's really grown since. So Las Dragones has like 50, 60 women who are all involved. And, yeah, I think... The cool part about Dragonist is it's not only a football club, but really serves as kind of a network of support within the Lava Pierce neighborhood, both with offering resources like English class, Arabic class, Wolof class to the kids and families, offers all sorts of, I don't know, like during the holidays, we'll often get presents for the kids, or during COVID, it became like a food bank. So, different ways that we can kind of use the network of teams and families and the kind of trusting relationship that you build with them to create kind of other change or create a safer neighborhood mm-hmm, mm-hmm. through kind of just knowing each other and supporting each other. So
0: that it, commitment to impact was there from the very beginning?
1: Yeah, I mm-hmm. think Dragona said its origin was looking for a way to have an impact in the neighborhood mm-hmm. and looking for gaps. It's, it's the only sports program in Lava PAs. And there just wasn't really a football club. Mm-hmm. And I think it's clear to anyone who lives in Madrid, but it's not a very kid friendly city, right? Mm-hmm. There's very few green spaces for kids to play. And I think you really feel that in Lava Pies, where it's, the plazas are filled with adults, there's police everywhere. It's like not, it's not really, uh, does it create an environment in which I think a kid can feel really that they can thrive and be a kid? Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I joined, this would have been fall 2020
0: and how do you get inside get involved with dragones
1: yeah so i think i think i've always had the impulse to mm-hmm. learn the lay of the land and find a way to kind of get involved it didn't really happen until i got injured so i like partially tore my acl which is like a big time mm-hmm. knee injury and they were looking for a coach which i do think is like a classic football story is like you get injured you retire and you become <laughs> a coach This would have been 2021, and I was like, cool. I coached in the States a little bit. I like working with kids. So, yeah, I agreed to coach, and and it was really hard at first. My Spanish was bad. (laughs) So it was honestly really hard. And not only are you, like, immediately at the center of this thing, but, right, you have all the parents, all these families. You're, like, I don't know, having to be half a social worker navigating whatever other conflict yeah, and then I think Dolores wanted to start Dragona's English, and I was okay, yeah, let me do it. Like, That's I'm, the
0: classes. Yeah, so mm-hmm. we offer
1: free English classes to both the kids, and then we have an adults class as well. For so free. I think for free mm-hmm. with, yeah, I'm mainly volunteers from the United States who are like simultaneously teaching English here. So I kind of got that program running. And yeah, more and more I just was like, oh, you need to apply for a grant, and it's in English. Let me do it, or you have anything that was in English I was just offering to do and yeah I mean Mm -hmm. I think it's a cool way to immediately integrate yourself into the community and also a great platform to kind of start to change I don't know football spaces and love Mm of BAs I don't know
0: just a parenthesis, you and you were you teaching English on the side at this point?
1: Yeah, so at this point I was an English teacher. Mm-hmm. I spent three years, yeah, one year in Bilbao and two in Madrid mm-hmm. teaching English. Then I won a grant to learn Spanish, and then I did a master's. So,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but yeah, I was working in a public school.
0: Mm-hmm. I find so interesting that you know when you think about sports and soccer in particular, most people when I hear conversations about sports it's very focused on the competition aspect of things, which I feel is what's so refreshing about Dragon is that this social justice and integration and diversity is really connected to that. And you also talk a lot about community. So I'm just curious from your perspective of someone that is there, you know, every day or a lot a lot of time, what do you see? What is this how is the sports in conversation with this other big themes of social integration, social justice, social impact. How are these things connecting? What is sports doing there?
1: The like team structure is really interesting in that it gives you the time and space in order to kind of really get to know the kids and get to know them in a way that's not school, where it's where I would say it kind of reflects a more disciplinary structure. But it's in a context in which the kids really want to be there, right? They're showing up because they like football. They want to be with their friends. Um, And from there, I think you build the trust and relationships and can begin to teach other values, to intervene in other kind of like social conflict. And I, I know their schools are super diverse, but I would really argue that it's one of the only spaces where the kids are like collectively, voluntarily coming together in this super diverse space Mm -hmm. to work towards a kind of a common project and where I think our job is not to replicate disciplinary or like policing structures but to really celebrate that diversity and I think it, it can be done in easy ways where right we'll do different games where you say like different colors of the cones and I'll like let a kid do it in Greek and then do it in Arabic and try to like use any kind of space or moment to also highlight like fun aspects of having that cultural diversity. And I think we do a lot around women's football. And specifically, and I think it's really important to start not just do like things within the women's team, but to actually bring that conversation to every mm. one of the teams. So with my kids right now, there's and it's hard, there's one girl on the team, there's 20 boys. And and of course it sucks. It shouldn't be like a fight for this girl every day against Patriarchy just to be an eight-year-old who wants to go to soccer practice because
0: there's an age that then they separate, so it's twelve.
1: Yeah, so they play together till about twelve, I think. Which, on one hand, I really like, mm-hmm. and the girls who are good are like, it's cool, right? Yeah. <laughs> um But I think it's really hard because, you know, every mistake you make as a girl is not just if it's a boy; it's like mm-hmm. okay, whatever. But it's it's a reminder that this. The football space isn't yours. The field's not yours. Not only is someone mad at you, but they're like mad at you because you're a girl. Mm-hmm. So no, I've been working specifically with the parents on trying to figure out kind of a plan to help support this play. Mm-hmm. And our approach is like, well, no, I think it, you just need to begin to normalize women in these spaces. So we're coordinating. We're trying to coordinate professional women players visits, visits to professional games. The kids will come and watch me play. <laughs> I think having a woman coach is helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, For International Women's Day, they'll always study, like all the kids have homework to study an athlete, a woman athlete activist, Mm -hmm. and kind of come and present on that person. Um, I'm trying to integrate more like regular trivia about, Mm -hmm. if you Google who has the most international goals or something, the answer that will come up is Cristiano Ronaldo, but really it's Christine Sinclair. Mm -hmm. So I think I'll try to find different ways to kind of like push the kids to expand their thinking in those mm-hmm. ways. And I think what's cool often is that the kids aren't the problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that it's often, it's narratives they hear, it's their parents, it's things they see on TV, it's that there's no examples of, you know, they don't see, like, women f- as frequently on TV in football spaces, which which has been good with the Women's World Cup. It's changing. All mm-hmm. the kids know who Alexia Puteas is. So that's really good. But I'm always pleasantly surprised by how, with think, like, one of our coaches is trans, and if the kids get it, no problem. they figured out pronouns super fast. Or there's a number of, like, disabled folks in the club, and it's like, the kids don't care. It's just mm-hmm. another person who yeah. they know is part of the club. So I think those things are really cool to see, is that the kids are actually super adaptable and excited and willing to kind of be open and learn. And, yeah, that you can, through creating those relationships and community, can really, like, intervene on some of those other questions.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And yeah, it takes time, but
0: mm-hmm.
1: I think that I think that answers your question.
0: Um. This might be a, an obvious question, but I'm thinking that someone who might be listening to this, who is not involved in the world of sports or even football, or even social yeah. justice and activism, you know, particular particularly soccer. I come from Portugal, where there's a big culture of soccer, and it's all about men's soccer, and and it's such a big part of the culture and what it means even to be a man. Yeah. Why do you think it's important that we talk about these things and we give examples of role models and that we open up these conversations? We have these conversations. Why is this important?
1: Okay, yeah, I would take it in a couple different directions, I think. I think first is if we love soccer, now our goal is for people to feel comfortable and confident and excited to play this sport. And that I think we would actually be playing better soccer, even if spaces were inclusive, if people felt that they could show up and be their full selves in those spaces and that they can, yeah, right? Like when I talk to the one girl player on my team, it's like, she loves soccer and that's Mm -hmm. really cool. Or we started a queer team on Dragones and a lot of it started with gay men who were saying like, look, this space has always been a space of trauma for us. And it's not because we don't like soccer, it's because... It was so tied in this hyper-masculine, heteronormative ideas that we didn't feel comfortable in these spaces. And it's like, no, they want to play soccer. So I think one is if we actually cherish and love this game, making it inclusive, it will help only expand it and create a better version of it. And the other part, I think, is that soccer as a really universal language, I would say, right, What's really cool is you get, right, I have kids that moved a month ago and the first thing they do is look for a soccer club. <laughs> it's like when they arrive in Spain, it's it's a great form of integration and it's a great way to, it's something you know, it's, it's played so globally that I think that alone makes it a space where you get a really cool meeting point from which then you can begin to work on other social justice issues, right? And I think it's really cool that I talk to people on the Dragonist men's team that they're like, you play soccer, and they just have no context for women's football. But from there we're able to kind of have this engagement and suddenly they mm-hmm. are coming and supporting the queer team. And it's like, whoa, in what world did this like mm-hmm. random man who two weeks ago didn't even think about like women would like football is now implicated in this bigger struggle. So I think knowing that it's a hyper diverse kind of Uh, meeting point allows us actually to engage a lot of people who might not. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're not going to just show up for whatever activist meeting or whatever else. It's a way to kind of bring that conversation to those spaces as well. Um, So I think as a tool for organizing for broader social justice, it's a really important space to be in. And... Yeah, I would say kind of those two, our love for the game and our love for, and our greater commitment to social justice. It's Mm -hmm. a really important space to be actively having those conversations Mm in.
0: And how do you see what comes to mind when you think about the impact that Dragones is having in the community? Do you have any stories, any specific examples that come to mind? Because I also know, or I read that you were or you are involved in organizing some workshops and some programs to help, also help with the integration of refugees, for example, and a lot of these women initiatives. Or other things that come yeah. to mind when you think about the ecosystem of Dragones.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think kind of what I was saying, that it's a, like a lot of people show up mm-hmm. just looking for a soccer club, and it's one of the only like inexpensive options if you want to start playing football in Madrid. And and one of the most diverse clubs, right? I think our men's team is largely players from a refugee background. Mm-hmm. It's almost entirely black. And I mean, there's so much racism that they experience, but I also think it's really good that they can have a soccer club that plays at a high level, that they feel like supported and that's ready to defend them in kind of taking those spaces.
0: You mean it within, in general, the racism that they face, in particular in the football ecosystem, the soccer ecosystem with other teams um, and even within?
1: Yeah, I guess I would say both, but mm-hmm. I think I was initially thinking about the within the soccer mm-hmm. ecosystem okay. of they're probably one of the only teams that has a diverse player mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. roster. Specific examples. I think the moms on the women's team are really amazing in that a lot of them are single moms, and a lot of them, I think, have leaned on the structure of owners to help with the process of kind of mothering, mm-hmm. right? So you join this thing alongside other kids, alongside a, leather, a lot of other women, and there's a real commitment taking care of each other, helping moms kind of escape violent situations or get access to resources, even the moms will like go vote together, and like for the first time <laughs> voting, and things like that. That maybe it was really hard for you to feel integrated or feel ready to vote in Spain, and it's like no, these other moms are going to go with you. So I think seeing that network is really impressive, mm-hmm. and it's and it's really cute because you go to soccer practice, there's moms, there's kids around, you know the kids, you know the moms. I go to kids' birthday parties, <laughs> and then the same moms will like make me a birthday cake. So that I think is really special. Mm-hmm. For the men's team, yeah, it's largely like a refugee background. I think a lot of folks use football as kind of a way to integrate into Spain. Yeah, I think it's one of the first kind of more institutions that you'd write up against that feels more maybe inclusive or same thing that you like are capable of being part of it just because you already know how soccer works. And from there, there's definitely been cases of drug owners helping folks get jobs or helping folks. We do... We've been offering free barista trainings with alongside a cafe, Ola Coffee, and mm-hmm. Lava Pies to try to help people get like barista certifications if they want to choose to try to get a job that way. So I think looking for additional ways in which we can always provide resources, job training, support to folks who are navigating having recently arrived or navigating finding a job um, is really important. Mm-hmm. And... I and mean, yeah, with the kids, I think it's just cool that they're in this hyper-diverse project together. And I think a lot of them that might not maybe excel in school do excel <laughs> on the soccer pitch. And it is cool that they have a space that encourages them and supports them and where they can feel confident and that they're not going to be met by school disciplinary structures and that, I think if they need support, it's like okay, yeah, we have English class, we have math support, so any ways that we can, mm-hmm. from there, then help them in other areas of their life, in a way that the the families already have like the confidence or trust within the organization, I think is really important as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Now returning a bit to your story as we wrap up. Oh,
1: thank you. <laughs> thank you for what? Thank you for like guiding this because I feel so like <laughs> yeah, no, I have no okay. idea what's going on. It's a
0: lot. It's a lot. <laughs> So you also write. I read you your googled stuff. Me. I really enjoy your stuff. Huh?
1: You googled me. Yeah, what did you find? <laughs> of
0: course I googled you. I'm interviewing you.
1: <laughs> what did you find? I'm curious.
0: Well, I found what you have online. What is the writing for you? You put online that it was around 2020. What is this writing impulse?
1: I'd say I do a lot of freelance writing mm-hmm. in kind of different areas. Some of it Has been more like activist focus and others has been more. I'll do like travel blogging, Mm -hmm. just uh, you can request free things as a travel journalist. (laughs) Um, And then I also do like tech writing and whatnot. I think, I mean, I think writing is part of like a commitment to continuous learning, Hmm. right? I think you learn a lot as you process it through writing and getting it down on paper on a document. Yeah, I think you learn a lot through that process and thinking about how to kind of format your ideas and present an argument. Um, I think I have an academic edge that I, like, do really want to sustain and do. i am thankful that I can continue to do that through writing. Mm-hmm. At different moments, it's definitely been more to, like, amplify voices. I did an interview a couple years ago with the Sindicato de Monteros. So I don't know if you found saw, that. Yeah or with other like labor movement work, that I'm happy to, to help use any platform that I can get access to to help amplify some of those movements. Mm-hmm. And
0: So the main intention there is, is just uh, making sense of things and, and the craft of writing, or is it also a financial aspiration that you...
1: Yeah, I mean, I'd be lying if I said mm-hmm. I didn't do a lot of the writing because it's also a way to supplement your income, which I haven't... Lately, I do a lot of freelance tech writing.
0: Tech writing.
1: But no, I think the tech writing I do is much more, it's less emotional. It's less yeah. commitment to anything uh, and much more of a financial interest in having some sort of stable income with that. And I, I truly do like kind of know what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I think it's. it gives you a vocabulary. It gives you a context. It forces you to be up to date. And I think it's fun because no matter the like topic, you can find a way to kind of make it more relevant to yourself and find a way to be interested in it. Mm-hmm. But no, the writing I felt I felt more passionate about is definitely more the political work I've done and the travel writing I do as a fun way to request press passes when I like go to Ibiza, things like that.
0: Did you write before? Like as a kid, as growing up?
1: No, I can't say I was never. Necessarily, like the most journalistic approach. Mm -hmm. I think always through activism, you had to like publish different things just to make sure, like, you had some control over the narrative. But no, I can't say I was like a star in English class or anything.
0: I went through your writing, I enjoyed it a lot, and I saw the journalistic mind a bit and that curiosity of the, the social justice and the activism, which is clear that you're curious about those things and that's why you're doing that and then the post that I find most moving was the one you made about your trip with your friends to the skate parks that was really good that was very moving and that gave me a lot of insight on the work that you're doing also at Dragones and this intersection of the sports and the community and you know bringing people together it was very beautiful. It's
1: so funny you found that. <laughs> <laughs> that one was very like, I'm going on vacation and I want to yeah. be able to pay for this somehow. Mm. And I could write an article about it and they'll pay me something. But yeah, I think... did you
0: just start doing it?
1: I just started. I have a friend who is the all-star of freelance okay. writing, of sending pitches out.
0: How does it work?
1: You basically write... Sometimes you can find online, they'll be looking for specific articles on specific topics, if you go on Twitter and you look up Pitch Me, you can often find a number of, we're looking for articles this month that relate to, like, International Day. Mm-hmm. Know, it's like, but, yeah, I just, with a lot of it, I sent cold emails out being like, hey, I'm going on this. And I, I started freelance writing mainly to do travel writing, which is a huge tip is – we went to Switzerland, and you just email the tourism board of the country, and you're like, "I'm a journalist. I'm here on assignment. Can you get me like a free whatever?" And they'll give you free public transit, and in Switzerland, that means these rail passes mm-hmm. on these insane trains all through the Swiss Alps. Mm-hmm. So um, I started very specifically with the Switzerland trip in mind, mm-hmm. and wrote, and it, yeah, wrote about queer girl vacation and if you can find an angle queer woman make it like people want your writing and i do think i'm in a weird privileged position where i can write for publications in the states but be based in europe which very few freelance writers are going to be able to churn out content from Mm -hmm. switzerland germany spain ibiza i don't know Mm -hmm. so but no i think for me, it's also been just a way to def- keep different like outlets open and has only resulted in positive things and I think is is fun. <laughs> and I like being forced to kind of process and figure out how to tell a story. Mm-hmm. But that's funny you found those articles. I don't <laughs> norm that's stuff that I just don't even share. It's like I do this very specifically to get press passes. Mm-hmm. But I'm glad you <laughs> I'm glad you did your research.
0: yeah. Okay, yeah. And you know, I know that you're now there's this visa reality as well of as an immigrant and you're doing several things because you work part-time no at dragones
1: yeah but i am volunteer yeah. there yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. you volunteer I, there
1: and i coach so i guess mm-hmm. i get paid to be a coach okay. but
0: so how do you my question is you know we we talked about your past we talk about the present and now looking a bit at the future what are you sitting with now what are you if you're struggling with something of, you know where am i going what am i doing what do i want to be doing the same question of who do i want to become where are you at yeah
1: so this week i finished my masters <laughs> so i've kind of given myself some space to mm-hmm. think through this question even In for business. myself um, I, yeah, I studied business administration here in Madrid. And at this point, i'm I really want to work in football and either developing women's football or football for social justice, social change, which, yeah, the visa is the main barrier just because you need to get a job that would sponsor your visa. But I do feel myself very qualified, both with years of experience of basically working in like a grassroots football club. And with the general knowledge and interest, I'm, I also just started teaching at the European Sports Business School. So I've been teaching kind of sports business classes, which has been a really cool way to mm-hmm. combine my interests of teaching politics. They have yeah. to re- they have to read what I tell them to read, <laughs> and yeah, my my own like academic interests. So that's I'm hoping to be able to continue to be a professor in those. How contexts. did you get
0: that? Did you just apply.
1: It was kind of random and. Lucky, I would say there was definitely some luck involved. I met Carmen, who's the director of the university here in Madrid at the World Football Summit, which is a big football conference that happens once a year, I think, in Europe. I think they have them all over the world, but in Europe once a year. And they wanted to come, they wanted to bring their students to do a tour of Mm Jargones, which I think is really cool in that it's the super urban football club that people can come see. And their classes are all in English, so it was, like, normal that I would potentially give this tour. And then they had a professor quit three days before, and now a next round of, like, courses would start. And they were like, okay, we need someone urgently who speaks English, who has time, who, like, has a – their whole thing is that all of their professors also work in the industry. So Mm -hmm. it's like, I think I fit this very urgent need of has time, speaks English, works in the sports industry – and is available three days from now. Which yeah, that was it was definitely bold to be like, okay, now I'm a professor, this is cool. <laughs> but but no, I like really to me it was a really fun experience.
0: Was it challenging um, at the beginning?
1: It was challenging mainly in that there was there was very like, okay, you start in a few days mm-hmm. and the classes were two and a half hours. I think I'm really this my whole master's here has been disasters as far as, from an educational perspective, of four hours PowerPoint that you're sitting there and it's not dynamic and you're not really engaged in activities. So I think I was really committed to finding a way to make my classes more engaging, bring in speakers, connect with the students' interests. So it was challenging, but also it was super fulfilling. And I think we did a lot of different games and activities and whatnot, and the students, all their feedback was like... Mm -hmm. I was kind of shocked by how positive it was. I was like, whoa. Um, So that was really cool. I would love to continue in that. I'd also like to work on securing a job specifically. And I would really love to work in developing women's football or something Mm -hmm. related to kind of the organization of a club. Mm -hmm. And then I coach. I don't think I would coach on any more professional level. I think the coaching is really also the kind of community aspect of drug owners and the kids and families. and yeah, I'll continue to freelance right on the side to supplement all income. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's kind of scary, but it's also exciting. And it's it's time to get a job. You know, mm. scary in that I don't have an immediate thing that I'm doing. No, I'm not. I want to actually. I take that back. I wouldn't say I'm scared. I would say the looming aspect of the visa is stressful. But mm-hmm. beyond that. I do feel super qualified and excited. I think the question is going to be, yeah, like putting your network to work to find a position that you feel is fulfilling and actually works with kind of your goals and needs and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But no, I think it's exciting, right? I'm pretty, I say I'm like toxically positive. (laughs) Like I'm I'm truly like this is going to be so fun. So yeah, I'm looking forward to, Mm -hmm. no, yeah. I finished two days ago. So now I'm like, okay, yesterday was my break. Today I have this. And then I'll get to setting up more networking things, working on my resume and starting to apply. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah.
0: It's very cool that you're determining the things that you like and putting your focus in that.
1: Yeah. No, I would say I do feel lucky that I like do feel like I have a strong sense of self and a strong sense of what I like. Because mm-hmm. I do think a lot of people get really lost in not even knowing where to start. I feel like blessed that that's not my problem necessarily.
0: Mm-hmm. But yeah. It's, and why do you think that is? It's just you? I would attribute
1: it a lot to my dad. Mm-hmm. I do think our whole lives were really, for better or for worse, this kind of toxic, like, you can do it if you work hard, just we will support you no matter what, follow your dreams, <laughs> like kind of narratives that all of my brother, I have two brothers, and Everyone's very like, in that area, doesn't feel a lack of confidence, mm-hmm. which I think is really special because I think a lot of people do just get really lost. Yeah, I think my problem would be more overextending myself or being too excited or doing work for free. I think I need to stop doing work for free <laughs> <laughs> so that I can actually sustain myself. Yeah. But
0: yeah. mm mm-hmm. And the last question is, if you could speak across time now, so we go back full circle, um, what words of wisdom or encouragement? No, no, I don't want to see the notes. I'm I wanted this part. I have <laughs> my, my notes, spot. but I looked at <laughs> Joking. I did. Joking. <laughs> okay. What would you tell across time to your younger self? To whatever age you want. You decide the age.
1: Okay, yeah. No, I was thinking specifically talking to my high school self. And saying initially that I'm proud of I'm proud of her. Mm-hmm. I think not to be too hard on myself. I think I can be very rigid with expectations I put on myself. And I think political commitment sometimes can become really restrictive to you wanting to be, like, the best version of yourself. So, yeah, being kind to yourself. And then I think, like I'm saying, I, like, stand by a lot of my decisions as a younger person. I don't know if I always stand by the, like, approach to communicating my vision or my ideas or whatever and I think learning how to be patient with other people as you like work through political movements is mm-hmm. always important and there's change comes slowly mm-hmm. and you will ideally hopefully see the like positive benefits of what you're doing even if it's not visible in the immediate sense mm-hmm. yeah
0: yeah <laughs> thank you like thank you,
1: you no this has been fun
0: Alexia Garcia is the director of business development, project manager and football coach at Dragones de Lava Pies. Alexia is also a freelance tech and travel writer and an occasional DJ. Waking Youth is a project that you can find more about at wakingyouth.substack.com, where I also share thought pieces that accompany the episodes. Our lovely theme music is composed and produced by Carlos Sierra, who also edits our episodes, and I'm Carlota Gitch. If you liked this episode, please consider sharing it with someone you think might appreciate it. And last but not least, thank you for being here with us. Talk to you soon. Ciao!